previously on the Sick Invite Podcast. That's, that seems um, like it's, uh, what's the opposite of helpful? Unhelpful. <laughs> you are now listening to the Sick Invite Podcast with Kayla Herb and Ricky Grimes. Hello, my name is Kayla Herb. And I'm Ricky Grimes. And this is the Sick Invite Podcast, a storytelling show about all ailments. Big or small, chronic or temporary, the Sick Invite provides an inclusive space for you to share your story. What is wrong with you? Uh, with me? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I'm just a little tired, a little sleepy. But you know what Paulie Walnut says in Sopranos? A man needs his seven hours, Kayla. And I'm not, I had like maybe five. So I'm a little, I'm a little tired. How are you? Uh, that's great. I had an MRI today. Oh, uh, anything specific or just uh So... I'm so thankful Pacific? for Victoria's episode last week. I learned, I was very prepared for my neurologist appointment. Um, last week I knew nothing. Remember, she was like, "Oh, EEG, is that right?" And I was like, "Oh no, EKG." Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, she was right. Um, I don't know why I said that. So I had both an EEG and an MRI this week. Um, Interesting. I've been having some headaches. Turns out they're migraines, so they just want to make sure nothing else is going on. Right. So we really keep you updated here on the Sick Invite Podcast. Every week there's something new that Kayla's going to doctor for. It was a foot, that was a head. Listen, I'm chronically ill, but also um, very picky about things that go on in my body. I'm very self-aware. That's what happens when you get chronically ill. Yes. But thank you again, Victoria. I was very prepared for all the noises and the cage that was put on my head when I went to the MRI. And the goop that was in my hair for the EEG. This show is brought to you by KaylaHerb.com, where knit blankets, custom quilts, and other homemade items are available for purchase and custom order. We got a promo code for that website, Sick Invite. Discount on all pre-made items that are not on sale. Regular priced items. Do us a favor and take a screenshot of our show and share it to your Instagram story. That kind of stuff helps us quite a bit, gaining some followers and more listeners. Please subscribe to our show, comment, and review. Follow us on Instagram at the Sick and Podcast and tell your friends. We also have some merchandise available on the com, including our What's Wrong With You shirts, mugs, stickers, and buttons. Should you announce, didn't we have a, a winner of our contest? We did. That would be Chase Klein. What um, did she do again? She uh, won our contest, which was picked at random so she didn't really do much she what did you have to do to the contest she liked the picture she shared it to her story and she tagged three people um but i'm happy she won she's one of our biggest fans she talks to us a lot about our episodes so thank you chase she got some merch she got a uh, shirt and a bunch of stickers and buttons in the mail yeah there's some great stuff on there Uh, um we are also now on patreon for three dollars a month you can get early access to our episodes behind the scenes content 10 percent off kaylaherb.com and much more every month we send you a little sick invite item whether it be a sticker or a button or 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 whatever it might be i don't want to give away too much for what magnets this month oh wow coasters last month wow keychains next month wow all right, so this is a pretty exciting one. Kayla, uh, what's your name again? Kayla. Kayla. So Kayla, uh, Klaus, I got too many K's in the show. <laughs> Klaus messaged me and um, to, to set us up for the, this week's episode, but he said that he was going to be very busy this week because he was adopting a cat. Oh. Adorable. So what he said is, and normally I don't like to listen to Klaus, I usually put his emails directly to spam. And then, but I go get him afterwards because I need the information. So, but it's fun to go, ah, you know, emails and spam. He wants help from the listeners to figure out what he should name his cat. He gave me a list of names here. 
And so he wants the, the listeners, and he said specifically not us, <laughs> to give a suggestion of what he should name it. So this is a couple of things here. Now, these seem like dogs' names. So I don't know if he's if he, I don't know if he's doing it on purpose or maybe he misspelled cat. I don't know which one it is. But here's the names that he has listed here. He has a Snappy, a Blitz, which I think I like, Adonis, which I think is the name of Drake's kid, hmm. uh, Klaus, uh, Bilbo. <laughs> Bilbo Baggins? No, that's my cat's name. No, it's just Bilbo. Oh. It's just one name. Uh, T-Bone. And then this is where it gets weird. Ellen DeGeneruff, which I think is for a dog. <laughs> that should be for a dog, right? Yes, I vote Bilbo. Old Tim Johnson, which you remember is the dog that they shot in To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> and Banshee. <laughs> so, I, I don't know. I think... I don't know. I don't know which one of these. Well, I would what's, pick. what's Klaus's last name? Is it Baggins? What is Klaus the producer's last name? Yeah, I have no idea. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know anything about that. But he also put Klaus as one of the names. I don't know if that was just because he was signing it. Because I didn't read them in order. Maybe that was just sign. Do you think he was signing his name at the end of this message, or do you think he actually? I don't know. We we will narrow it down. We'll create a poll today. Do you think Klaus is the type of guy who would name his pet his own name? Yes, I do too. On today's show, we have Aisha Billy. So, Aisha, what's wrong with you? So, I am recovering um, from bilateral vocal fold polyps. And what exactly does that mean? Yeah, so bilateral is actually just an anatomical term. It means both sides of the body. Uh, So, we have two vocal cords. And in order to make sound when we talk, they have to touch. Uh, So I have a polyp on each side, and what a polyp is, it's a fluid sac. So it's kind of akin with a nodule. A nodule is a callus. Um, So a polyp is different in the sense that, yes, it's a lesion, it's a bump, just like a nodule, but it's a fluid sac or a sac of fluid rather than a callus. Okay, so it's different from when people say they have vocal nodes that's is that a nodule yeah yeah so if you watch pitch perfect yeah like, <laughs> that's exactly yeah, what i was yeah. thinking yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah it's definitely different they're very akin but the only difference really is a node is a callus and a polyps is fluid sac so how how did that happen what caused that are you a, a singer Yeah, so I'm actually not a singer, but I was a vocal professional. Um, I went to school for fitness development. I went to SUNY Cortland upstate, and I was super, super passionate about my job. I moved into New York City upon graduating. I took a job in the theater district at a really, really funky gym, one of the best places probably in the entire world. Um, It's called Mark Fisher Fitness, and I did not know about vocal health, vocal health it's not really talked about. It's not really normalized. There's not a lot of conversations about it. So when you teach fitness, typically in a boutique gym, in that type of a fit business model, you're teaching a lot and you're teaching a lot straight through. So I would sometimes be teaching for four hours straight, literally without a break, uh, or I would have four hours in the morning and then another four at night. Uh, so it was really just, Using my voice incorrectly, which led to vocal trauma, 
And the reason I wrote bilateral vocal fold polyps is because polyps actually are unilateral. They tend to only be on one side. I was a little stubborn and I didn't go to the doctor initially. And because of the touching of the vocal cords, I caused a reactive lesion on the other side. So it really came from an excessive amount of talking. And that being said, talking improperly, not supporting my breath, uh, not having resonant voice, which is something I'm happy to talk more about. So, so were you like as uh, I'm just picturing what you're doing. So what was it that you were teaching or teaching or instructing at the at the gym or were you, what was it that you were doing specifically, if you don't mind? No, I don't mind at all. So I was not like a soul cycle teacher who looks like they just did a line of coke. I don't know if I could say <laughs> that on the podcast. But cycling, you said, right? Cycling? Yeah. I don't really oh, know. OK. No, I, I didn't teach cycling. I was oh. comparing myself. <laughs> Yeah, I was comparing myself to like, because I feel like soul cycle teachers have such a rep that they literally look like they're cracked out of their minds and they're screaming. I wasn't screaming. I was teaching um, a lot of, a lot of stuff. So I had, um, we had a six month uh, transformation program, which is basically like a group class setting. We use kettlebells because in New York City, real estate is expensive and kettlebells is an efficient way to to get your workout in in a smaller amount of space. So I'd be teaching kettlebell classes, uh, conditioning classes, strength classes, and then we also had a weight room. So I would be in the weight room for an hour. That would be more of a one-on-one setting or three-on-one setting, I should say. And then I would run into a class and teach a class of eight to 15 people. It depends what classroom I was in. The studio's pretty big. Mm-hmm. So yeah, pretty much kettlebell and weight. And pretty much the entire time, you're basically yelling, uh, not maybe not even yelling, but just in a very authoritative tone saying, we're going to do this, we are instructing, now you're going to do this, that kind of thing. Yeah, and we really valued education. So mm-hmm. and we really valued like high standard service to our clients. So I knew everybody's names. I, you know, spoke the entire hour and I would constantly be educating people. So I would maybe say like, Kayla, I love how that deadlift looks. I think your ribs are flaring just a little bit. Let's get those ribs down and keep it up with how slowly you're coming down at the end of that movement. So it would just be a lot of cueing. So you're just constantly talking the whole time. It's kind of a a move. The only reason I'm – I know not to that high level, obviously, but I used to teach – I still do, obviously not now – swimming lessons and so to small children – so in that sense, I'm doing outside, I've done it and inside. And I know it's kind of a similar thing where you need to kind of keep everything moving. And, and, I'm, and you're constantly like, even if you're not yelling, you're talking loudly and you're constantly saying different things to kind of move things along. And, and so I, I have a slight understanding of kind of what, what you're going through. It seems like yours is much at a higher level. At most gyms, I know like there's also like music playing and, and, and stuff like that. Were you trying to compete with all of the other sounds in that way too? I actually did have a microphone, so I definitely want to mention that. And I do want to say, if you were teaching classes, that does make you a vocal professional. Physical education teachers, they're vocal professionals. Teachers in general are all vocal professionals. Anytime that you have to project and you're in a teaching setting, you're making money using your voice, really. So, you know, I would say you definitely get the gist. Obviously, New York City Theater District is very, very high paced, and the clients, like, I'm super blessed. Like I got to work with a lot of folks who perform on Broadway, 
um, and stuff like that. So, you know, it's definitely a very high energy atmosphere. And also while doing that, you're also working out too while trying to teach these people. So are you also like working with being out of breath while talking to people? Is that part of how you were talking about properly breathing while you talk? So actually I didn't do the workouts with the clients. We would have a little short section of class called show, tell, do. They would warm up and then we would have, it varied on the class, but like eight to 10 minutes where I would demo the newer moves for that class. And then for the remaining of the class, I'm actually walking from client to client and I would be putting my hands on people and cueing them. So when I talk about breath support, I actually mean diaphragmatic breathing, which if you're a singer and you're listening to the podcast, you definitely, you already know what that is. It's using um, the lower part of your ribs to support your breath rather than your chest. Mm -hmm. Chesty breathing is something that basically all of us do. And diaphragmatic breathing is something that is taught through training. Opera singers are fantastic at diaphragmatic breathing. We would teach diaphragmatic breathing in a fitness um, setting as well for our clients because it would help brace the abdominals more ideally. So when I talk about breath support, I'm actually talking about simply breathing into my diaphragm rather than my shoulders and my chest and yanking my shoulders up towards uh, my ears. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So is this, I, I feel like, like you were saying, there's so many people who are vocal professionals. I feel like more people need to know this stuff before they, they get damaged. So is this common that like people get this kind of injury and like, do they have no idea how they got it? Cause like, this it t- makes total sense once you said it, but I never have thought about that before before this. Yeah, it's insane. Like, it's just so wild to me because now that I've been through the ringer and I've just seriously been through the ringer with this injury, like a lot of people get injured and then they go to voice therapy and they're good. I went to voice therapy for years. It was not good. Had to get surgery. Had to recover from that. So anyway, to loop it back to your question. It's not really as talked about. More people definitely do need to know about it. And vocal fold polyps and vocal nodules are common vocal injuries, but I wouldn't say they're common injuries overall. Mm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. If I could just, we're going to probably, uh, right after this, we're probably going to start moving into, you know, how you started to realize that you had something going on but i do want to just tell a quick funny story about exactly what you're talking about is that i when i was teaching swimming lessons one time and i think the reason i probably never got to these issues is because i only taught for uh short periods of time and i haven't done it in a long time but i remember i was teaching outside one time and i had maybe seven to eight small children that i was watching so i'm just talking constantly that way they're paying attention to me and i was outside one then the landscapers came and then they were right to my right were mowing the lawn and blowing the leaf blower <laughs> and then at, at no joke at that exact same time a helicopter flew slowly over the thing so i had to scream over all four of those things so i i that's, i and i remember being the sensation is actually interesting cuz it's 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 like a your it's a tiredness but it's not, it's similar to like a, a muscle feeling but it's it's not in a place where you feel it it's weird it's like you can identify an exhaustion but it's hard to kind of feel where it is yeah that ricky is called vocal fatigue and it's funny because we're not used to knowing our vocal folds 
are wicked small. Like, I can't stress that enough. They're literally the size of like half of your index finger and middle finger. They're wicked tiny. And it's wild because they make so much, they can make so much sound, as you can see with singers, your pals who yell at bars. But anyway, we're not really taught where our vocal folds are. So when you feel vocal fatigue, you're like, what is this like rock that's sitting in my throat right now? Right, right, right. That that makes a lot more sense now that you're thinking about it. I'm just thinking of any time I've ever yelled <laughs> in my life and all the damage I could have done. Um, so how how did you know that this was a thing? And how did you know or even learn how to properly address it? I wouldn't even know what kind of doctor to go to. Yeah, so you would go to actually an ENT. And uh, like I said, I was working with a lot of people who actually did sing professionally and they had a lot of knowledge about vocal health. So long story short, in August of 2018, I was teaching class and I noticed among like over like a week, I was like, wow, wow, you guys like talking hurts. And they were like, Mm, that's kind of a red flag and I was like oh but it's fine it's fine and then it basically became to a point where speaking became absolutely excruciating and the reason I think that I was so stubborn to go to the doctor was because I had just moved to New York City and doing anything in New York City is such a pain and I was working a lot and I was resistant to it but finally the pain became so excruciating I couldn't speak I couldn't get through class I couldn't get through a conversation I could not talk so then I got an appointment at an ENT, and when you go, they do something that's called a scoping. So this is basically a camera that is attached at the, a very, very tiny camera that is attached at the end of a long tube. Think of it like one spaghetti. And they stick that wire down your nose all the way down into your throat. It is incredibly Jeez. uncomfortable. I've gotten very used to it at this point. I've had countless scopings, but I remember the first time I, I had it, like my tears were streaming down my face. But anyway, so they stick the scope down to your throat and then they have you do a variation of vocal sounds. So like you would hold like E or hold like ah, and you would see your vocal cords on a camera a big screen and they would see if there's there are lesions on them that way so when people complain about the covid test now are you like you have no idea <laughs> what the nasal <laughs> test is like the amount of things that i i had covid in march and then i had to get tested before surgery tested after surgery tested before i went to get this other test that he needed i've had so many things shoved down my nose within the past six months like yeah it's definitely i will say the covid test is rough I, i'm not gonna say it's a piece of cake but yeah the scoping is really rough yeah i i had the covid test uh also and then they did the flu test at the same time and i it's not fun i feel like they touched my brain now when you you were saying that it hurt to talk like how did you did, did you think it was just a sore throat or did it feel different? Like you knew it was something different than just like a no, cold No, it totally, it's, it totally felt different. So your a sore throat is typically where your tonsils are. Mm -hmm. And 
your vocal cords are a little bit lower. I kind of want to explain it where you see the Adam's apple on a man that like mm-hmm. midline of the neck in, you know, in between like the clavicle and the bottom of the chin. So it's a little bit lower speaking basically felt like a cat was scratching the middle of my throat mm-hmm. and it was sunburn. So it was like a cat scratching sunburn. I do want to mention this. A lot of people don't have pain in vocal fold polyps or nodules. Like I think I did have a unique case in that sense. So anyone who's listening, there is a way more vocal damage that is not painful. I did have pain. So I, did you find this kind of information out from working with theater people? Cause just like, from past interviews that I've listened to, like I, I listened to Ben Platt from um, Dear Evan Hansen talking about vocal control and like how he goes from a song where he's, you know, crying in the scene to the next song where he's like belting and he talks about like the control of even just like moving the snot and saliva within his face so that he could properly sing. Like, do you think that having being surrounded by people who understand that kind of control that normal people would have no idea those parts of their body even exist. Do you think that influenced your decision or even your knowledge to understand like this is something different than just your standard store throat, that this is a vocal issue? Yeah, I was definitely blessed with the people who I was working with at the time because they, how do I explain this? Like a vocal professional is so, particularly a singer, particularly one who is of the caliber to work on somewhere like Broadway, for example, Mm -hmm. that individual is so incredibly in tune with these little, little, little muscles. And also I had a lot of voice teachers in my fitness classes who would look at me and they would be like, you're not supporting well when you speak, or you're not speaking in resonant voice. Resonant voice is I'm speaking in resonant voice right now. It's where the resonance of the vocal vibrations rests in your face rather than back at your neck like this or like down at your chest like this. You always want to be projecting through your mask. It's a healthier placement. So I definitely had clients who would come up to me at the end of class who would be like, I know that you're complaining about vocal pain. I want to let you know you need to be supporting through here a little bit more. You need to be resonating your voice underneath your eyeballs rather than down at your chest wow that that's like I don't like I know what you mean but like that's such a like shift of my mind like like putting my voice under my eyes like I I I don't even know how I would learn how to do that so I I appreciate you saying like calling these people vocal professionals because that is a skill an absolute skill that needs to be taught like who who figures this out on their own oh my god yeah it's a lot of training it's a lot a lot a lot a lot a lot of training I can't stress it enough so if you go to a show or if you go to a bar and you see somebody singing and their piece really moves you like please recognize that that individual very likely put hours and hours and hours into that class Mm-hmm. So when you went to the doctor and they kind of revealed or they figured out how, how long of a process process was it from when you first went to the doctor until they kind of figured out what it was? Was it a long process or was it just that one test and they were able to see it? 
So I went to some random guy. I don't even remember what hospital it was. He had an incredibly old scope. I think it's rare that this happens. I just had poor health insurance. He, what he saw, he diagnosed me as pre-nodules, which means exactly as it sounds like I'm on the brink of nodes, but I'm not there. So he put me on vocal rest for two weeks outside of work, no talking. And I did that and the symptoms didn't go away. And a lot of people will tell you like within this realm of like voice community, always get a second opinion. So I was lucky enough. I found another doctor who is fantastic. He works at Columbia actually. And he had a really, really good technology. When he scoped me, he saw it right away. He was like, I see the problem. Like you have polyps on your voice. So when you, they told you no talking outside of work, did that make any difference just from the volume or the amount that you have to talk for your job? You know, I think at that point, the damage was just so bad and the job required so much talking that even with the decrease of talking outside of work, you know, did it make a difference? I'm sure. Yes, but not substantially. Well, you know what's interesting is the way you described that where the person, when the second doctor scoped it, they were able to see it. I guess it sometimes actually means like the way they're able to finagle the 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 camera to see if they were able to get, you know, to literally see it. So that's like part of the skill of the profession. That's interesting. I never thought about that before, but I know that probably is a killer. You've had stuff like that. Not like that, but you've had cameras and whatnot. Well, like a, I've, I've had many scopes, but they've all been up my butt um (laughs) but you know what i mean i guess there's a a more of a technique to that type of thing that i as a layman just think you know there's only one way to do it and it is what it is i kind of forget that there there is some type of you know skill to you know there are probably some doctors that are better at it than others or just you know for whatever reason that's but i just never noticed that that's interesting well Yeah. And then when you when you say, Ricky, about like the just the professional of it, my for my scopes, I, I've had both endoscopies and colonoscopies and I usually get them done at the same time um, while I'm knocked out. They're like, let's just check everything out. But where my Crohn's is, is right in between as far as you can go up for a colonoscopy and as far as you can go down for an endoscopy. So on the first one that I had. Maybe I wasn't that inflamed at the time, but they if they didn't go far enough or if they couldn't reach that far, they might not have seen where the inflammation was. And that first doctor didn't tell me that, but my new doctor, my second one, he's like, I might not reach, but I'm going to try. Right. So I think you're right with the, the finagling. It's probably similar with any kind of scope, however you, wherever you got to go. Or it just talks about, it just talks about how I, I as a person who's, luckily has not had a ton of issues i see the medical world as a lot of people see the medical world as very black and white you know it's it's very like you have this you, it's easy to you take a test it's either yes or no you get this boom it's done but I've, there's so many and we've as we've been learning on this podcast so many little intricacies and so many things that take uh you know sometimes luck sometimes skill a combination of the two to just even determine what's going on and then to evaluate it so so I just learned this more stuff every time we talk to somebody about this. So, but so once they were, go ahead. I'm sorry. sorry. No, I just wanted to say, as like Kayla said, 
like it was almost not contingent, but in a way contingent on like your inflammation levels that day. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've always told people to that. The, one of the reasons it took so long for me to get diagnosed, it took eight years for them to figure out that I had Crohn's disease. And a lot of that was just getting the test at the right time and how long it takes to see a specialist. By the time I'd see them, I wouldn't be as sick anymore. The inflammation would be low, wouldn't show up on exams. And they'd be like, oh, you're fine. I'm like, well, I'm fine now, but three weeks ago I wasn't. So I think you're right there. So how did you feel when they told you kind of what was going on? Did you have any sort of sense of, I know you'd gone to one doctor, now you're going to another doctor. Did it feel, a lot of times we talk to people and when they get their actual diagnosis, that they kind of feel a mixture of relief or or, or more. They Some people feel worse. Did you have any you have remembrance of what that felt like to get that diagnosis? You know, I, I my best friend's an actor and she was like, I could tell you probably have a polyp. So it was by the time I finally saw this doctor, there was so much anticipation. Like you said, you know, there's so much like wanting to know, but I felt it in my soul that there were lesions on my vocal cords. So when he said it, I mainly felt relief, not from the diagnosis necessarily, but more so that I was finally getting care for it. And it was brought to light. So mm-hmm. I would say relief. And I would say also I felt like I was at the beginning of this really big mountain climb because I wasn't planning on quitting my job. So it was like, how am I going to make this work? How am I going to sustain being a vocal professional when I still have, when I know I'm locally injured now? Mm-hmm. Now, was there ever like, did, was there ever a possibility that you wouldn't, be able to use your voice that way like I think Julie Andrews famously had some sort of vocal issue and now she can't sing and she never will sing like the way she used to and as a professional singer and actress that could be devastating so did they ever like warn you or was this how did this go about it can absolutely be devastating and for anybody listening who is going through vocal issues or know someone who's going through vocal issues like I just want to say like you're not alone because it can be an incredibly it is an incredibly isolating injury because a lot of times you can't talk um so I do think what happened with her I do want to say is very rare I had a lot of clients who actually did have have surgery or did have vocal damage my friend who I was alluding uh, talking about earlier who was an actor she had pre-polyps so she was lucky she was able to get her acid reflux under control and vocal therapy which by the way acid reflux major uh factor as well for vocal health so i would say he had also my doctor had also worked with a lot of singers and a lot of actors and he was so chill i have to tell you he made a big difference like i would go in there all panicky and he would be like he's actually a long island native funny enough but he would be like all right so this is what we're gonna do and um we're gonna do this and uh i'll see you in a couple weeks to follow up and if you need anything just email me his calm demeanor really was helpful yeah i i love when a doctor is nice and calm something like when i was first going i kind of wanted a more dramatic response 
but now um i appreciate because to them like they see this how many times a day like they don't care anymore and they're like this is not new to them so it's really not alarming to them so it's nice to know like okay this is common he's not alarmed i shouldn't be alarmed so all is well and he's got this um that is definitely comforting so you talked about having to quit your job i assume you eventually had to go no talking at all yeah so basically what it looked like from there on out so i did the two weeks of vocal rest outside of work again very isolating like just imagine you're not talking outside of work at all that means phone calls that means dinners that means anything um i was pursuing commercial dance at the time i was a commercial hip-hop dancer and i was lucky enough that i didn't need my voice for that so i would be in was in the studio a lot just training and taking class but anyway uh after those two weeks i had to take an additional entire week off from work of just nothing no talking so seven days of vocal rest and then i went back to work and i started vocal therapy so once a week for six months I would meet with a vocal therapist and she would teach me about resonant voice, about diaphragmatic breathing, about um, easy onset. So I'll give you an example of hard onset. Hard onset sounds like I, I know. That's hard onset. Where soft onset is like, I know, I know. It's not as uh, 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 those type of sounds. So uh, I had to kind of completely completely reteach myself how to talk. I was still on vocal rest for a long time outside of work until I got resonant voice down in the breathing and all that jazz. So I was on vocal rest outside of work for like a solid six months. And then I had a mental break because that's not sustainable. I was just incredibly stubborn to keep the job. And then, um, it kind of really wore me down and I had to weigh my options out. And that's when I decided to, to leave and switch professions. So when you, was it not an option to like go on like a medical leave type situation and come back or like for the rest of your life now you have to change your lifestyle and your career? A medical leave maybe would have been plausible. I will say we weren't experiencing positive results from therapy. So for my case, I do think a medical leave would have been, I don't want to say we weren't doing well in therapy. Like I was working super hard. My therapist was incredible. But every time I would go back in for a follow-up for the scoping, it was still there. Mm -hmm. So I do think, you know, a medical leave it, it would have been a really, really long leave anyway. Like right now, I'm kind of back in the industry just part-time, but there's so much trauma from that injury that I don't know if I could even go back in full-time. It's hard for me to give you a concise answer because of the emotional trauma that came with the injury, if that makes sense. It does. Now, And you're the, the first guest we've had on who had an injury and not a disability or a chronic illness. So this kind of... As gradual as it may have been, the injury, your life changed pretty fast. Now, do you find that you identify more with the disability or chronically ill community, especially after 
having to not be able to speak because that's kind of an accessibility issue at that point when the world around you isn't operating in a way that's functional for you. Yeah, especially living in Manhattan, like wicked hard. Mm-hmm. I will say I definitely do identify more because even though I've had surgery and I don't, I don't have vocal fold polyps anymore, I still really struggle with acid reflux, which causes, causes inflammation, which speaking in that condition, I will knock on wood. That's how you would re-injure yourself. So I definitely do identify more with that community now. I can see also how different the world is when you can't speak. Like people were really, really nice to me. They were always holding the door or like the barista would give me like a free ginger shot of lemon or, you know, whatever the hell they like sell at juice spots. I will say there was a part of that that was also disheartening that I was so shocked at how much kinder people are when they so clearly see that you're fucked up. Oh, sorry. When they so (laughs) clearly see that you're suffering. I was like, wow, like that really taught me a lot. And it made me want to be kinder, want to be an really active participant in kindness regardless of if they look healthy or not (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's it's interesting that you say that too because we've had people talk about uh, invisible versus visible illnesses or disabilities and even though we can't see your nodes from here your body language kind of determines at that point that no like I can't speak like how did you communicate with people to let them know that you can't speak yeah I do want to say with it being an invisible injury is like such another heavy layer because if the injury is invisible, the progress is also invisible Mm. and that is very challenging. So I just want to shed light on that just for anyone who's listening because it's, they're all things that I wish I heard. Uh, So I had an application on my phone that my coworker showed me. He was like, my girlfriend uses this when she's on vocal rest. A lot of singers take vocal rests periodically. They don't have to be injured. So it was an application called BIG, B-I-G. It's basically a blackboard, but electronic. So I would basically be writing into BIG on my phone and then turning the phone around and it would say like medium coffee with milk or et cetera. Mm -hmm. Now, were people well receptive to that or did anybody ever give you a hard time about using it? People were definitely well receptive. I did notice within this injury how much of a now I'm I would say I'm a recovering people pleaser, but I noticed how much I did suffer with people pleasing. Like if I wasn't able to, you know, be vocally there for like my pals, I would feel have like guilt spirals. So anyway, I would definitely say that the people around me were very, very receptive. A lot of people thought I was deaf. And they would stop talking to me and I would have to write like, no, like, I can hear you. I just can't speak. That yeah. was an interesting thing. But I would say they were receptive. Yeah, it's it's always interesting that people, because I've, I've heard that before, that if people aren't speaking, for whatever reason it might be, there's often the assumption that they're deaf or vice versa, that they're deaf, that they don't speak. Uh, but it's it, that's nice to hear that generally people were very nice and sounds like they were willing to accommodate you and like 
so easily like you're like this is what i need for you us to communicate and they're like no problem this is how we're going to do it well what i was going to say kayla is, is i wonder is was there anyone because the the injury was invisible so to speak and and they were kind of you know was there anyone that didn't believe you or did anyone you had to fight to kind of tell them that this was real were there people that you were trying to deal with in your daily life you don't have to name names but did you have any sort of interactions where you people weren't believing your issues that you had going on because they weren't visible yeah i think uh something that i think is totally skipped over in this discussion that i didn't bring up was actually my relationship with my mom and i think a lot of this injury actually goes to that because i was teaching months before i got injured and i was completely fine I do think I did have like very improper, I know I had an incredibly improper technique and, you know, maybe this was inevitable, but I would say at the time of my injury, I was having really, really difficult and crucial conversations with my mom that were incredibly emotionally triggering. I really love my mom. I think she's a very resilient woman. Um, Our relationship is just quite complicated and at the time when we would have those conversations, my throat would really lock up. And I, that's when I started reading actually about the throat chakra. And I would read about what is like, what a healthy throat chakra looks like, what an unhealthy throat chakra looks like. And a part of unhealthy would be like not speaking your truth, not voicing your needs, um, abandoning yourself, not speaking up when you should. And that was definitely something that I did with my mom a lot or didn't do rather. So I was going through this thing with my mom and my voice would get wicked tight. Like that's not an understatement. That's not dramatic. It would get really tight. It would drop octaves. People would notice. And then I would go teach for several hours on this tense throat. So I do think that that was um, a reason for the injury. But to bring it back to your question, Ricky, can you repeat? Well, I I think that was kind of what I was talking about a little bit. I mean, uh, what I meant was more specifically regarding after you had had the injury, but that was all very makes sense as well, how how emotions and and, and social interactions are all tied to it. But I meant uh, also if you had to deal with anyone who just didn't believe you, where you said, I need vocal rest because my voice hurts. And they said, you know, no, I don't. You're just being you're being uh, dramatic or you're being something along those lines. Yeah, I would definitely. That's why my mom came up like she does respect it. But I think she's the type who definitely needs to see it to believe it. I did move home home after I uh, moved out of the city. So I'm back living with her. And it's definitely tough sometimes when I need vocal rest. And I feel like she thinks it's like an excuse to check out meanwhile i'm like in pain yeah and as you were talking about with with your mom like when when i was trying to like understand what your pain is the first thing i thought of was like if i'm trying to talk while i'm crying and that like knot that you get in your throat so i kind of i kind of get what you mean now where like you're operating under that physical stress that your body received because of the psychological stress so you know a lot of people you know they get dismissed with oh it's just stress but there is also that component of how much stress and emotion 
can contribute to your physical conditions and you, you, you think that that had a, an effect on how much damage was actually done? I think if I'm being completely transparent with you, I think it had the 100% effect with that. Mm-hmm. And then the excessive teaching just made it surface. If I wasn't teaching as much, I probably wouldn't have gotten physically injured. But all of that teaching on top of all of that tightening of the vocal folds, that was completely caused by those conversations I was having with my mom at the time. I remember um, one of my good pals, she lives in Manhattan as well, and we would sometimes grab a, a cup of coffee before I would go in and teach. And I was talking to her about those conversations that I was having with my mom. And she's a voice professional in the sense that she's a professional actor and singer. And she was like, dude, your voice sounds completely different from when you walked in into the cafe. And that's when I I remember when she said that it resonated so much with me. And I didn't know then. I know in hindsight, when I am upset, exactly as you said, when you cry, for me, my throat tenses up. Everyone's different. Some people get very nauseous when they're upset. Mm-hmm. Some people get dizzy. Some people get tired. For me, my throat gets really tight. It seems like you're very aware physically and mentally of your health now, and you have a really good grasp of understanding your triggers, understanding both physically and mentally, understanding what's going to make it worse, what makes it better. Did you do a lot of research when you figured out what was going on or especially with all the people around you did like, did, did you kind of just figure it out on your own or did you like dive in and get a grip on this and get all the information that you could? It was definitely a mix. I'm a wicked, curious person. I'm a nerd. I love to read. So I definitely took a lot of it into my hands. I'm very much a lover and a believer of science. So I did a ton of reading on my own. That being said, I was blessed with the best clientele ever they would be stopping me in the hallways giving me these like vocal supplemental pills that work really well for them or like these homemade cough drops or like these free youtube videos to help explain further technique and etc so i was super lucky i was really bombarded with a lot of information from the people that i was working with additionally i did do a lot of reading and then additionally on top of that i had an incredible of vocal coach or I should say vocal therapist she was from Chicago and she was you know working for Columbia at the time and she was a singer and my vocal therapist now studied opera in her undergrad I will tell you like opera singers they are the most (laughs) in tune so I was really blessed to have those type of people around me that's so awesome that you had that um a lot of people I think like you seem like you're very open and not shy person at all especially with your career so do you think that being so open and being willing to talk about it helped to get better and also are you feeling better I didn't even ask you that now are you healed (laughs) yeah so talking about it definitely helps uh or texting about it because when you're on all (laughs) that vocal rest you literally can't talk uh so I would definitely say like opening up about it was helpful I do think opening up about my mom was super helpful. It's still something that is so tough to talk about because how do you reconcile the fact that you love this person, but they also cause you a lot of pain? They're Mm -hmm. two divergent truths. 
So you're kind of caught in between the reconciliation of those two things. So talking about that helped me realize, oh, I can be both. I can love her and still resent her a lot. It's tough, but they they do coexist. Definitely. No, I, I, go ahead. I was just going to say that's another something that a lot of people don't learn or don't understand is that you can feel both of those things. Yeah, Andrew definitely taught me that for mm-hmm. sure. No, I'm sorry. sorry what, what were you going to say? <laughs> no, I I totally got off track. Well, I don't know. Did we? Well, did we get into the the surgery? No, we did not. Do we, we talk yeah, about how? I, I think... Yeah. So, how did it end up getting to surgery, and then how did it how did it go? How was that experience? Yeah. So, to answer Kayla's question, I am healed now, but there is some residual soreness. So, basically, what happened with the surgery was I went for vocal therapy for like six months, moved back home, took a break, did some more vocal therapy, went back and got scoped, and like quit my job, quit my vocal professional job and then we went into quarantine and you would think like maybe throughout quarantine it would heal completely but I went in to get another scope and he scoped me and he was like you did all this vocal therapy we're literally in a lockdown you're not speaking at all and he was like the polyp's still there so I'm I do think it's time for surgery. Surgery is the absolute last resort when it comes to vocal injuries. A lot of people really, really suggest that you exhaust therapy first. My surgeon, I feel like he's really progressive and he doesn't necessarily think that way. He did have me exhaust uh, therapy first, but he was very like pro-surgery. A lot of people within the vocal community are extremely anti-surgery. Like, will just have the bumps forever and just not get surgery. My vocal therapist has polyps as well. And she just never got surgery. She just basically found a way to speak around the injury. And she's like, I don't, I'm not getting surgery because I could still sing the way I want. I was not a professional singer, so I didn't really care as much. When he told me and when I saw that I was still at the injury during a quarantine, like I just can't stress that enough because during quarantine, you're literally doing nothing. You're barely speaking. When he suggested it, I said, all right, like, let's do it. The world's on lockdown anyway. Like, I already can't sing the way I used to. I would sing for fun. I was like, I already can't sing the way I used to. I already quit my job. Like, what else is there to lose? So we had scheduled the surgery for April. But what happened was he got deployed out of his practice into the COVID emergency floors. So we basically had to wait until the curve got flattened. And then we rescheduled surgery for July 6th. So it's been like six months post-op. And you're feeling good. I'm feeling well. It definitely took a lot of time. Uh, He made it sound like I would be healed in two weeks. Not the case. One to three months. Definitely give yourself three months uh, to judge it. I'm about six months out now. When I have an acid reflux flare up, when I'm on my period, and when my stress levels are unmanaged, like, I am sore. I need to be on vocal rest. I'm in pain. Hands down. So do you feel like you have... Oh, sorry. 
No, go for it. Do you feel like this is a chronic condition that you have now? Like, are you always going to have to manage this or do you still think that you just need a little bit more time? No, I think it's definitely a chronic condition. And it's like, I don't want to sound like a pessimist saying that, but I'm just being realistic. Like, my throat is an incredibly tense area and I have tendencies to not speak vocally healthy. I have to be always, I still do my vocal practices, uh, the things that I learn in therapy, my vocal exercises. Every single day, I sleep with a humidifier. I see my voice when I wake up. I have to make sure that I don't drink too much. I don't eat too many greasy foods to keep the acid reflux in check. There are so many factors. So I would definitely say I do view it a more chronic. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to not use it. It's like, you know, if you had like a, a wrist injury or carpal tunnel and then you were an accountant and you're using your wrists all day, there's, it's still a part of your job. And even it's part of not your job, it's just speaking. And yeah, I would say it's, yeah, even more than being your job, it's, it's <laughs> talking is, you know, using your vocal cords is, especially if you're used to it. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> Recovering from surgery was wicked tough. Like, basically, you do get put under. So you get to the hospital, they put you under the best sleep you'll ever have. I don't know if either <laughs> of you have had surgery. Have you had surgery, Kayla? Uh, I had toenail removal surgery, but I've been put under for um, my colonoscopies. And yeah, I best sleep ever. Yeah, basically, you fall asleep and you wake up and the surgery's over. But uh, I, you can't speak for five days post-op. You cannot cough. You cannot clear your throat, which is actually super challenging. Well, can can I I ask a, a, hold on, let me ask you a stupid question, though. Do you mean when you say can't, you mean you shouldn't, or you mean you can't like you literally can't? You should not. Okay. You absolutely should not. Your vocal cords need to not touch so that they can heal because they he basically cuts off the lesions, so they have like these open incisions on them. When I went to get scoped, my one week post-op surgery, I saw the blood lines. Like there were just lines of blood on my vocal cords. So in order for them to heal, they cannot touch. Right. And when you cough, they touch. Right, 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 right. Wow. Well, I, I certainly had no idea how much this would influence your life when you first sent in the story. I was like, oh, cool, an injury. We haven't had that yet. But this really is like a, a life-changing thing for you. And it's very intense. And part of what we want to talk about on our show is that everybody's going through something. And uh, like you didn't really do this at all. But some people tend to compare their injuries or illnesses or experiences to other people. And everything that you were saying, like you're very self-aware. So you, you seem like you're in a good place. But a lot of people kind of tone down or dismiss their own experience and I don't think that that contributes to healing mentally from the experience uh, especially as you were saying when it's influenced so heavily from your emotions or from other stressors in your life but I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story this was so interesting and I had no idea how much uh, how many vocal professionals there are out there and I hope that people who are listening might uh, who are teachers or everything that you said are going to think a little bit more and take their voices a little bit seri more seriously. Yeah, absolutely. And if you are injured, you will get better. It's just, it's challenging, but it's possible. Mm -hmm. Ricky, did you have any other questions today? 
Well, I do not, but I mean, I'm, uh, I would not consider myself a vocal professional uh, anymore, at least not like I used to be, but I also, you know, I, I, I do uh, stand-up comedy sometimes, and I used to play in, in rock bands, so I used to just probably, you know, use my voice incorrectly all the time, but I think I was lucky enough that I never did it frequently enough that I had any sort of issues, but I certainly understand just minimally kind of what you felt like and what you were going through. So, and I really appreciate you coming on to talking about it because it certainly wasn't an, an easy experience or doesn't, it's still not an easy experience. So talking about it is, is really helpful. So I appreciate you coming on and, and giving us all this information. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on the Stick and Bite podcast. It's so good to be able to find community within such a not fun situation it makes it it actually helps the healing process i think so thank you well thank you again for coming on the show this has been an excellent episode thank you so so much for the stick invite i'm incredibly happy to have been here that's right she said it yay (laughs) 